And so the text for this morning is pretty much the whole gospel of John. But I don't know that you're really ready to stand for the whole reading of that. So we'll content ourselves with reading the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. I'm reading this morning from the precursor to the English Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father. John bore witness to him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. And from his fullness have we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Christ, you who came among us, and you who have revealed yourself so well through these words that you gave to your servant and our brother John, we pray that by the Spirit, that empowered your ministry and that raised you from the dead and that has come among us to be you among us, we pray that you would make these words alive to us and make us alive to your gracious, tender mercy towards us, your affection for us, your design and purpose for us to love and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, I haven't been with you really long, but I think I'm just going to tell you the truth about myself. I am a fan of the TV show House M.D., that crazy sociopath doctor who does not know how to live 
is just totally dysfunctional in every relationship he has, but who just happens to have this genius of being able to understand really complicated medical conditions and, and tell his staff how to fix them. I don't I know I should just I should just turn it off and walk away, but House reminds me of a very close friend. And I would rather yell at House than yell at my friend. But not too long ago, I was just passing time watching the TV. You know how that goes. And I was stunned with the story that I saw developing on this particular episode of House. See, there's this middle-aged single woman, Emma, who is pregnant. And the child in her womb has a heart defect that will kill the mom as well as, well, the baby will die unless there is surgical intervention and heart surgery performed on the baby in the womb. And it's a very dangerous procedure. And House is going like, hey, just have the abortion. Get rid of the fetus that is going to die probably and is going to kill you in the process. But Emma says, no, this is my baby. And I love him or her. And I want them to live. Even if it costs my own life. And so she talks House into doing the surgery. And so House is, you know, got her open and then starting to work on the little on the little baby. And then all of a sudden, this little hand reaches out from the womb and grabs his finger. And then he says something real caustic like, oh, you know, I forgot to TiVo alien before I came in here. But you can tell something is different. He realizes that that someone alive from the other side whose life he doesn't even acknowledge to be real has reached out and touched him. And he's now a different person because he's been touched by life from the other side that he didn't expect to be touched by. Well, the operation is successful. And the next scene is he's in Emma's recovery room. And he comes in and he says, everything's going to be fine. And he says, before he goes, he says, you know, you'd be surprised at how blind your baby's hair is. And she goes, Dr. House, that's the first time you ever called him a baby. And he says, oh, you know, I mean that thing that was trying to kill you. But, you know, he's just lying now. He knows that there's something more than he can acknowledge because he's been touched. And the the last scene is House, who's addicted to pain pills, is um, watching the TV in his own home. And on the TV, it's like one of these National Geographic specials of dinosaurs. 
and he's watching the dinosaurs. And then, and there's this, uh, and there's this beautiful song playing in the background. The lyrics are along the lines of, is there anybody to love you? Does anybody care for you? And then the camera goes down to house. His eyes go from the dinosaurs on the screen down to his finger. And he's rubbing the place where this baby had touched him. The New Testament screams to us that despite our doubts, despite our fears, a hand from another side has reached out of Mary's womb and has taken hold of us. One who was God and was with God and came in the flesh to dwell among us. Um, during Mike's world travels this spring, I'm going to be with you three different times. And the, two, and the three times just happened to wrap around Easter. Uh, one here during Lent and then uh, twice in April during the you know, the early Easter season. And I thought this might be a good time for us to come together in our hearts and minds and consider what three of the great theological voices of the New Testament have to say to us about the wonder and the mystery of that person whose hand reached out and has grabbed hold of us. So this week I'd like to talk with you about John's perspective on the wonder, the mystery of the God-man coming and, and touching our lives and what a difference it makes that he has done so. And then in the two weeks in April when I'm here, I'd like to consider one week Paul's voice and then another week uh, the writer to the Hebrews' voice. And sometimes it just step, it helps you to step back and get the big picture. John, there is nobody who works harder to make us understand that it is no ordinary human being who has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning. He was God. He was with God. This is the highest Christology, the highest expression of Jesus' identity and his ultimate source and one of the eternal persons of the Trinity. This is the gospel who gives us those great, those seven great I am sayings that are unpacking the fact that the great I am who showed up to redeem the children of Israel back in Exodus, that, that this one who walked on the earth is... Before Abraham was, I am. He is the bread of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the vine. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. And so you kind of almost think that as he becomes more magnified in this writing than in any other writing in the New Testament, that kind of people would just sort of fall away into the, you know, just kind of, become little wallflowers. But the mystery, the wonder of John's gospel 
is that just because this Jesus who has come is so, is so high and so exalted that the people that he comes to touch, the people that he comes to meet, are the most alive of any people that we meet anywhere else in the New Testament. He touches these people. And sometimes with just the word, they, it's like that moment that House has when that little hand grabs him. And so I just want to talk, I just want to, I want to reacquaint you with some of the people that Jesus touches and speaks to in this gospel. And I don't know, maybe you're like one of them. Maybe you're like a bunch of them. Well, the first person that, that I notice is Andrew in chapter 1. There are a couple of disciples of John the Baptist who um, followed John the Baptist's ministry, and John the Baptist has pointed them to Jesus. And so um, Andrew and another, another disciple of John the Baptist, they, they track Jesus down and... Um, and they sort of tap Jesus on the shoulder, and he turns around, and in John 1:38, he asks them one simple question: "What do you seek? What do you want from me?" Some of us are seekers. Some of us are asking the big questions. Some of us are kind of looking for God. And imagine that. Imagine God walking around the flesh and you come up behind him and you grab his cape or whatever. And you get his attention. And what do you expect him to do? Do you expect him really to turn around and ask you, well, what do you want? I don't have any idea what I, I went to college with all the big questions about why is there life and blah, 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 blah. And some people really helped me. Well, they, they introduced me to Jesus Christ. But if, if I really came upon him and he turned around and said, Okay, Reggie, what, what do you want? I don't know what I would say. I would just, Andrew had the good sense to just put all the other questions out of his mind and say one thing. Well, where are you staying? I really... What do I want? I just want to be where you are. That's pretty smart. If he asks, if you're looking and you really consider that he would ask you, what do you want? This is the right answer. I just want to be where you are. Second person is Nathaniel. Andrew and his friend go and they get Nathaniel. Nathaniel happens to be from happens to be from Bethsaida. Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Bethsaida is, oh, I don't remember, it's ten or twenty miles away. They would have been sort of rival Shivas, rival high schools. It'd be sort of like, I don't know, you know, you're either a gator or you're a Seminole. Um, and and in their enthusiasm, uh, 
uh, Philip, who was Philip, who's one of Jesus' followers, goes to Nathaniel and says, "We have found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth." And Nathaniel, typical Bethsaida answer, "What good can come from Nazareth? I mean, you're tell I'm a Seminole. You're telling me the Messiah is a Gator." I'm sorry, I'm not going there. <laughs> well, Philip persuades Nathaniel to come with him anyway. And when Nathaniel draws near, Jesus says, Ah, an Israelite. I'm at 147. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel says, How do you know me? And Jesus answers, look, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, commentators say that under the fig tree is just a metaphor for you've just been a, you've, you've just been a good citizen of Israel. You have been, you have allowed yourself to be nourished and nourished by the biblical stories You've allowed yourself to just be shaped by the, the stories and the pattern of redemption. And you've just, been, you've just been going through life. And you haven't really been looking for anything more than just what's there. But I'm here to tell you that I'm the point of the story. So some of us aren't even looking. And all of a sudden, somebody taps us on the shoulder. And you look in his face and you realize, wow, this is the Lord of glory. You know, you come, you've been going to church all your life, going to, you know, youth retreats and stuff. And people have been saying, Jesus this, Jesus that. And then it's just kind of blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, one day, it just, the lights just come on. The amazing thing about our Savior is it doesn't matter whether you're looking for him or whether you're not looking for him, that hand just reaches out and grabs you. Next guy I want to uh, talk with you about is this, this is the guy who's just too scary close for me. Nicodemus, chapter 3. Nicodemus is, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. This is a man whose education has gone beyond his intelligence. This is a man who's in a pretty scary position. He is a member of the Pharisee party. And the Pharisees are kind of the they're, the, they're the Democrats of their day. And this is kind of, you have to roll it back a few years. The Republicans are in charge. Those would be the, those would be the Sadducee party, the aristocracy. They're the ones who are the majority in the Sanhedrin. They're the rich people. And they're just a, there are a few Pharisees sort of representing the people. And that Nicodemus would be one of those. In fact, his name, Nicodemus, means victory of the people. And Nicodemus has been kind of following along, seeing what Jesus has been doing. There's stories of his turning water into wine up in Cana. And he has come in chapter 2, and he has he stopped the temple ritual for a day 
and overturned the money changers' tables. And he has said strange things like, tear this building down and I will raise it up again in three days. And there's Nicodemus just says, I am out of my league. And so he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because it's not safe for a person of Nicodemus's stature. It would be, I don't know, maybe shameful, maybe embarrassing, probably politically not correct to go and say, can you tell me the deal? What are these teachings you bring us? And it's to him that Jesus introduces the concept of the need to be born all over again from God. And on this side of that conversation, it looks pretty simple. It looks like he's saying, look, Nicodemus, the prophets have been all about the need for the spirit to come and wash us and cleanse us and, and, and give us a new heart to make us alive. But that only makes sense on the far side of Jesus' death, his resurrection and the sending of the Spirit, which we're only going to find out about that way later in this gospel. But for now, there are just these little hints from the Old Testament. But Jesus says, I can't tell you about heavenly things because you don't really understand earthly things. You don't seem to really understand the scripture. And he says, you were the teacher of Israel and you don't understand what the Bible has been saying about the need to be made new again. And then he goes on to talk about how you know, it's like the days in which the people had the, were getting sick in the wilderness the snakes were biting them. They were getting sick and they were dying. And God raised, God told Moses to raise up this, uh, this serpent. And the people who looked at it would be healed. And Nicodemus, he's just got to be, whoa, all this stuff going on. And Nicodemus had the sense to, listen carefully, just shut his mouth and listen. You know how hard it is for a person who's been educated beyond their intelligence to just shut up and let somebody explain things to them? We who, and my dad's from East Tennessee, my mother's from the Mississippi Delta. I'm just, I'm so aware that I'm educated beyond anything I really ought to be able to understand. And people like me, we have this, we have this tendency to compensate by just opening our mouth and talking, talking, talking. Nicodemus has the sense to just be quiet and let Jesus talk. And it leads then to Jesus' explanation of the simplest truth ever. For God so loved the world. Can you get this, Nicodemus? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's truly scary to get yourself so edumacated that that doesn't make any sense. And it is a true sign of intelligence to sit before the simplest truth like that and say, yea, verily, and amen. 
the next person that we meet in John's gospel is the woman at the well, who's at the complete opposite end of the social spectrum from Nicodemus. A woman, not a man, a Samaritan, not a Jew, a person whose lifestyle has been shameful as opposed to respectable. And you know how that story unfolds. You know where it's going to go, where Jesus has this wonderful opportunity, takes this wonderful opportunity to explain that God is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. And a day is coming where it doesn't matter whether you worship in Samaria or Judea, you worship in the spirit. But I love the way this story gets started. Other gospel writers will tell you that Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds and to pray. But none of the other gospel writers is quite as honest as this. Jesus sits down at this well just because he's tired. He's just tired. And he sends the disciples into the city to go get some provisions. And then this woman comes out in the middle of the day. From what we can tell, the women would go get the water at the well in the cool of the early morning, not in the middle of the day. And the fact that she is out there is itself an indication of the fact that nobody wants to be around this woman. And Jesus does something that's just kind of a brave thing for a Jewish man to do, period, without anybody around to watch and make sure that no hanky-panky is going on. He just comes up to this woman all by herself and says, would you give me something to drink? The word who was with God and who was with God comes among us in our sharing our fleshly existence, he gets tired and he gets thirsty. And he, he comes to this woman and he acknowledges this just most basic of human needs. I'm thirsty. Would you give me something to drink? And she goes, whoa, why are you talking to me? You're a man, I'm a woman, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, and, um, and it goes from there. For the sake of time, I'm just going to leave it there. He has a way of speaking to the high and lofty and bringing them down to the simplest of truths. And he also has a way of extending, looking with kindness and with, but with honesty. Yeah, bring, would you bring your husband? Uh, well, I don't have a husband. Uh, and says, yeah, I know. You don't have a husband because you had five husbands and the one that you're with now isn't your husband. Knowing everything about her, knowing the reason that she's out there in the middle of the day, knowing the shamefulness of her background, he shows her dignity and respect the respect of telling her the truth about herself but not pushing her away. And then she becomes the occasion 
for the whole town to hear as she goes back and says, hey, guess what? This guy told me everything about me. I mean, there were at least five guys in that town who were going, ooh, I'm not so sure that's a good thing. And then she just asked very simply, this guy couldn't be the Messiah, could he? And then they come out and listen just because he asked her for a drink of water. So he speaks to the high and the mighty and the exalted, the overeducated, and he speaks to the shameful, the shamed, and loves both. And then John 5. This is maybe one of my favorite people in all of John's gospel. John 5. We're in Jerusalem now, and there this, there's this well, or there's this pool in town where people... I mean, the story is that there would be an angel who would come down and stir the water. And if you got there first, if you were sick, you, your sickness would be taken away. Well, there's this fellow who's lame. And he has been lying by this pool for 38 years. And he has not managed to get anybody to help him get to the water. You know, some of us get stuff in our lives where it's just a lot easier to live with it than to take the risk of getting it fixed and then having to live. Well, like, okay, you're lame. What happens if you can walk, well, I don't know. You may have to get up and you may have to go like get a job and you may have to just like go do something with your life. And a lot of us are in positions where we would just as soon rather have the security of the hurt than the danger of what happens if that hurt were gone. And we'd have to imagine what it would be to live without that burden. I don't know, fill in the blank. I got my own stuff that I just soon just leave it alone say okay Lord we'll deal with that resurrection okay but I'm I'll just I'll take the pain for now what does Jesus do to this man in John 5 6 some of the profoundest words Jesus ever says he comes up to him and he says simply do you want to be healed I don't have anybody to get me down to the water. And Do you want to be healed? Jesus is a scary presence. Because sometimes in his relationships with us, he asks a very uncomfortable question. Are you okay just kind of lying there in your little fetal position feeling sorry for yourself? Or are you ready to have me go to work to raise you up off that sick bed? Are you ready to take the risk that I would empower you so that it now becomes your responsibility to go and tell my story? To give instead of take to show my love for other people instead of lying about the fact that there's nobody to love you. 
What a great Savior. What a scary Savior. Then there are Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These are people that Jesus loved, especially in John's gospel. And Jesus stays away long enough to make sure that Lazarus is not just dead, but good and dead, four days. So he's starting to get a little ripe, you know what I mean? That's when he shows up to do the healing. And then and Martha comes to him and says, you know, Jesus, if you had been here, you, we, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus reminds her. John 11, 23, your, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, yeah I, yeah, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Mary, Martha, she's got a bad rep from you know, the way she gets preached. And you know the story in, in Luke about, well, Mary's the one who sits at Jesus' feet and Martha's just too busy and too distracted. Well, that's one side of Martha. But here's the other side of Martha. Martha is one of the most theologically astute people that you meet in John's gospel. Jesus says, uh, your, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, yeah, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says to her, no, wait a minute. I'm sorry, that's not exactly in the Greek. That's sort of the Kittian paraphrase. Wait a minute. I and the resurrection, and the life. It's to her that he explains. The resurrection isn't an abstract noun that happens to you later. Resurrection is me. And if you are in me, you already have this life. So it's like Andrew. All the questions go out the door. All I need is to go be where you are. You want resurrection? You want new life? That would be me. I am the, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am resurrection? So that even if you go into the grave, you will go in with me and you will be alive because you will be with me. And then she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, he who's coming into the world. This, brothers and sisters, is the most complete statement about who Jesus is from any other person in John's gospel. This is the most complete confession of Jesus' identity ever in John's gospel. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who is coming into the world. I believe that you are my resurrection. And then the story unfolds. Two last people I want to take you to. 
are at the far side of the story, this raising of Lazarus was a mere picture of the fact that Jesus himself would rise from the dead to secure Martha's resurrection and everybody else's who, who is in him. And on the far side of his resurrection, we meet two last people. The first is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is the one who comes early, early in the morning. And she is the one that Jesus first appears to personally. And at first she thinks it's the gardener. And then when she says, when he says her name, Mary, she recognizes Rabboni, my teacher. Well, here's what's special. And then remember what happens? There's this awkward moment when she wants to like grab him and hold on to him. And he says, Mary, don't hold on to me now. Do you know why she wanted to hold on to him? Here's where you have to look over at the Synoptic Gospels. In Luke 8, we are told that Mary, we're introduced to Mary of Magdalene, and we're told that Mary had been exercised from seven of seven demons. Her life before she met Jesus was literally hell on earth. And I'm sure she wasn't seeking Jesus. I'm sure she wasn't just living under the fig tree. She was doing everything she could to stay as far away from anybody like this as possible. And somewhere along the way, he came after her and said, Daughter, you are mine. So demon one, out. Demon two, gone. Demon three, patui. Demon four, out. Goodbye. Demon five, demon six, demon seven, away with you Now she is mine. And now to secure her as a holy vessel who could never be inhabited by demons ever again, he goes into hell itself. That's where he'd been for three days, separated from the Father, experiencing the full wrath of God's anger, the pure pure momentary joy of Satan and thinking that he has done away with God's Holy One. And now Jesus is back from the dead. And when she sees him, she realizes that it's for good. They can never come back and have a home in me. So does she want to hug him? You better believe it. But he says to her, I have something more important for you to do than hug me right now. I want you to go, I want you to be the one to go tell my brothers that I'm alive. So some commentators, kind of with a smile as they write it, say, you know, it almost looks like Mary Magdalene is apostle to the apostles. Finally, Peter. You know Peter's sad story. Denies Jesus three times. And precisely to parallel those three denials, you know, when he just totally wussed out, Jesus takes him aside and he asks him three questions. They're not the questions I would have asked. He doesn't ask him, Peter, why did you wuss out? Peter, will you do better the next time? No. He asks simply, Peter, 
I just want to know one thing. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Good. Now let me ask you my second question. Peter, okay, we got that love thing out of the way. Now you know Peter's got to be waiting for the hammer. Okay, now I want to know, are you going to wuss out again? No. Question number two, in case you didn't get In case you didn't really understand this question the first time, let me ask it again. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Good, Peter. I have one more question for you. Peter's got to be gone. Here comes the hammer. Question number three. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do love you. Good. Now feed my sheep. This, is, this hand that comes from Mary's womb grabs you and me and in the face of our darkest hour, in the face of our greatest failures, he doesn't want to know, are you going to do better next time? All he wants to know is, will you trust the hand that has reached out and grabbed you? Praise to his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the profound nature and the tender nature of your love. May we never outlast our love. May may we find our feet never able to run past this affection for you that you have placed in us. Thank you for that touch that we cannot deny. And may we live to the fullest because you are our life. In Jesus' great name, our Father, we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, and let's close by singing hymn number 700.